This is the Santita Jackson Show. Happy December, everybody. I'm Santita Jackson. Get a little bit of feedback there. We're going to work that out again. WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. It is a joy to be with you today. Got a special guest, Ray McGovern. Yeah, you know Ray McGovern, uh, the former CIA analyst. Indeed, he was the lead analyst to brief the president of the United States. He was part of the team, then he headed the team for decades. And he has gone on to found, to be one of the founders of Veterans Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. You know, when many of us were being told that Iraq was about Saddam Hussein and a dictatorship, he said, no, 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 no. This is about oil. Period. And he's been calling out the lies and really the misdeeds, not just of the intelligence establishment, but of our government. And he helps us to see things that are being done in our names and really understand how the world works. So I'm really excited to have him because I want him to share with us what he sees happening in the Middle East and around the world and where America fits in on all of this. And, you know, is America taking a hit, you know, given our posture in the Middle East at this point? I mean, taking a hit publicly, I mean, in terms of our influence, think about it. Um, Russia, China, India, the global south, uh, that is the nations of color, they are all siding with the Palestinians and more and more European nations are, more and more people around the world are. And America's seen as the superpower that's fueling this massacre, which has resumed. And it is a massacre. That's what it is. You know, I don't know where they're talking about the fighting. The only fighting I'm seeing are the bombs that are being dropped in Palestine. So let's talk about that. It's not making anyone safe, everybody. It's not ending anything. That is not how, I don't know how you're wiping out Hamas. I just don't understand it. And I want him to talk to us about that. But Mehdi Hassan, brilliant journalist on MSNBC, uh, was fired. Now, it's very interesting. A few weeks ago, there was a rumor that the three Muslim anchors on MSNBC were being terminated. And MSNBC strenuously said that is not true. But now we see that one, at least in part, uh, it's true for one person. Simone Sanders' show is being moved to a special slot, I guess, for election time. Um, And Michael Steele, former head of the RNC, really good guy. Uh, And Simone's a wonderful person. It's great to see that, but it's, we're going to miss Mehdi Hassan. He gave really unflinching analysis of what's happening in the Middle East, and that's very, very important. But he did that with all of the work that he did, and we're going to miss his voice. So why do you think he was removed? Hmm? Call me at 773-763-9278. Was he being too truthful? 773-763-9278. Seven seven three seven six three WCPT and um and what do you want to ask or what do you want me to ask or what do you want to ask uh, Ray McGovern 
when he gets on the air. So let's get to some of the some of these headlines on the Santita Jackson show so we can get right to it, everybody. Uh, the pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas is over, according to this Washington Post report. The pause, which took effect a week ago and allowed for exchanges of hostages held by Hamas for Palestinian prisoners, uh, people who actually had not been charged, uh, most of whom have not been charged with any crime, uh, and indeed, they arrested children, five, six, seven, eight-year-old children who were held for years. Well, that exchange is over. That release is over. It expired this morning. Israel's military said it resumed airstrikes on the Gaza Strip minutes after the pause ended. The U.S. and Israel agreed to demands to minimize civilian deaths. Indeed, the United States has urged the IDF to be more precise in their airstrikes. A gag order on Donald Trump was reinstated in his New York fraud case. An appeals court yesterday upheld a judge's order that prevents the former president from making public comments about court staff in this civil case. The order was issued after former President Trump uh, posted a photo of an employee that the judge said led to threats against said employee. Former President Trump has recently taken aim at the judge's wife. Wow. A federal judge blocked Montana's tic-tac ban TikTok ban yesterday. A number of malaria cases surged by millions last year. There were about 249 million cases across the globe in 2022, according to the World Health Organization. Uh, And Sean McGowan, wow, uh, has passed on. He helped to reinvent the Irish music scene with uh, with his group using punk rock with Celtic Influences. Wow, he was only 65 years of age, and he died yesterday. And so uh, those are some of the headlines. In Chicago, you can see it's already raining. They have a high of 44 degrees and uh, rain throughout the day. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 36 degrees, mostly cloudy. In the NBA, the Bulls, 120. The Bucks, 113. The Timberwolves, 101. The Jazz, 90. In the NFL, the Cowboys over the Seahawks, 41 to 35. In the NHL, uh, the Red Wings, 5, Chicago, 1, and the Wild, 6. And the Predators, 1. So, kind of a mixed bag, but a really great night in sports. Pastor Tisha Dixon Williams, First Baptist Church of Bridgehampton, New York. How are you? The author of I See You, Sis. I See You, Sis. How you doing? I'm doing well this morning. How are you? You know what? I'm doing I'm doing well. I had a revelation before you give the good news. It was very interesting. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of friends who've made their transition. I mean, people my age. That gets you to thinking, right? Because you just start saying, yeah. well, you know, my number's a little bit closer. You know, and, that, and that's, you know, for me, I'm, I'm totally fine with that because I feel like we're going home. I just want to finish the work, my assignment while I'm here, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, one of our friends, you know, was from a family, a couple of them from the families that were very comfortable and they struggled throughout their lives. And, you know, some of the older people who were making commentary about their lives said, well, you know, they had too much money, and, you know, they were, had too much free time. And I said, no, they lost their way. 
you know, one of my friends lost his agency because his parents pushed him in a particular career direction. Another, he was pushed into a marriage that he didn't want. And um, and on and on and on and on. And I said, you know, when you lose your agency, that's a really, really tough thing. And sometimes people never recover. You know, when I say lose your agency, I mean lose your direct link to what you're supposed to do while you're down here. So it's just it's just something I, I wanted to share with you because I thought about that. And I said, I've been... I need to change my thinking about about this too, Pastor Tisha Dixon Williams. Do you think I'm off base? No, I don't think you're off base at all. I think you're right. I think um, I don't think you're off base at all. One of the questions that we have all the time is about death. We question life more than any time in in the face of death. Where am I going? What am I doing? As a matter of fact. Um, I always say everyone should have a theme song for their life. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the theme song for my life is the theme from Mahogany, where the lyrics Ooh. say, do you know where you're going to? Do you like the things that life is showing you? Where are you do going you know? to? Do you know? <laughs> do you, do you get, get what, what you're, you're hoping, hoping for? for? Come on, girl. When you look behind you, there's no open door. What are you hoping for? Do you know? And I just think that's, you know, death brings about more questions than it does life. The good news about that is God can handle our questions. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to have those questions. It's okay to wonder. It's okay to want to know. Um, Yeah. And I don't care how many times you see it or experience it. Death and transition in death is strange. I don't care how long you've been preaching, pastoring in the medical profession or what have you. Death is strange no matter how many times you see it. And so, yeah, it should cause us to question. Thank you for that because, you know, it's tis the season. During this season, I've tis the season. lose people, right? You know, it's so yeah, it's, yeah, thank you for that. And, and I needed that. I said, you know, let me just ask her that on the air. Because I know a lot of people are going through a lot of things right now. And yeah. one of my friends oh, yeah. asked me, why is it? Why do we lose so many people during the holidays? And just I'm, I'm hearing all of these questions now because a lot of us have lost a lot of people over the mm-hmm. past couple of years anyway. And yeah. um, so I just I thank you for that. I really, You're thanks. Welcome. I needed that. How about that? <laughs> Thanks so what's on question. your mind today? Oh, no, thank you. Well, interestingly, it kind of ties in with the question that you asked because it's all about judgment. And when we talk about judgment, we often think about uh, ridicule or how we condemn people or how we look at people or stigmatize people. But if you want to be, if we want to be honest about it this morning, we don't have a choice but to judge. Most of our life is spent in a space of judging. When you think about it, we have dreams that we defer for fear of being judged. There are opportunities we let slip through our fingers because we're afraid of what they're going to say. We're afraid to talk to someone. We're afraid to wear certain things. We're afraid to change our hair, all because we don't want to be judged. No one wants to feel as though the decisions that they make are being questioned. No one wants to be belittled because of a poor decision or based on your looks or physical attractiveness. 
But judgment has its place. And judgment doesn't always have to be bad or critical. When you think about it, you use your judgment. Using your judgment is a fundamental part of life. The ability to judge is key to marrying the right person. You have to judge whether or not your personality is mesh and whether you're well-suited. What's her family like? Does he want children? Do we fight more than we laugh? All of those things take judgment. We use judgment when raising our children to assess their behaviors to ensure they're on the right track. The ability to judge really affects our quality of life. It determines if it's the right school for us, the right job for us, the right investment for us, the right move for us. When we think about it, most of our day and most of our lives are spent in an attitude of judgment. So judgment is not a bad thing when you think about the question you just asked. Am I living well? Am I living the right life? Am I doing the right things? Am I on the right track? Is God pleased? All of those things take judgment. But when we think about judgment, judgment is also part of our attitude about how we judge other people. And so there's an ad that says, if you're going to drink, drink responsibly. And I say, if you're going to judge, you must also judge responsibly. When we judge, we form an opinion about something or someone after careful thought. We regard people either good or bad. But when Jesus makes the statement in the book of Matthew, it wasn't a blanket statement to mean that we should never judge, but rather he was moved to speak because of the way that people were arrogant and how they were acting and how they were judging people. And they judged people based on if them themselves were beyond judgment. And so we have to stop judging by mere appearances, but judge correctly or righteously. In other words, Jesus was saying to us, if you're going to judge, judge right, judge righteously. And what does that mean? It means thinking and feeling and acting in a way that totally conforms to God's will. When we judge, it ought to be in a way that conforms to God's will, not the world's standard. We judge scripturally. So we shouldn't judge based on opinion, but judge based on what we know to be true, what we know the Word of God says. We judge wisely and prayerfully. If we can't judge wisely, we ought to ask God for wisdom. That was Solomon's key. He asked for the wisdom to judge God's people, and God made him king. We have to judge factually. Get all the facts before you cast judgment on somebody. If you're going to tell the story, tell it all. And we judge silently. When I say this, I don't mean you judge yourself or judge to yourself or in your mind. But when I say judge silently, I mean, here's a rule of thumb. Jesus is quiet about it. We should probably stay quiet about it. <laughs> if there's no basis for judgment, don't judge. Because the reality is the things we find so offensive, Jesus didn't bat an eye at. He didn't say a word about it. We're getting upset about the things that did not upset Jesus. And you'd be interested to know what upset Jesus. Hypocrisy, greed, superiority. All of those things were the true things that upset him. And so it's not our job to judge others. It's not our job to convict others. It's not our job necessarily to reprove others. Not our job. Let's do our job. What's our job? To admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient with everyone. This is the type of judgment that is required of us as it pertains to our fellow man. That's our job. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. I know that people think that's light stuff, that that's just watered-down gospel. There are people who believe that if you aren't preaching from Revelation, you aren't preaching. But mm. scriptures like this are considered milk, and they're craving meat. 
we become so super sanctified that we're spiritually lactose intolerant. But that is the meat. This is the substance of our whole faith. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to know that's not milk. That's meat. That's the USDA choice, ground brown, blue ribbon, Kobe beef, ribeye, T-bone steak, filet mignon of our entire faith. And if we can't digest that, we have to stay in the dairy aisle. So judge responsibly. Judge in a way that conforms to God's will. Judge in a way that uplifts people. And judge in a way where you're willing to assess yourself before you assess others. And that's the good news. Thank you for that. That really did flow into what's been on my heart. As I said, you know, but I say this all the time, you know, whenever we see things that we don't understand, we say, oh, that's crazy. Or I was talking with my mother, and she came, came a, little, a little upset with me. That I said, well, you know, I, we can disagree without being disagreeable. Not really, but everybody's got a mom. <laughs> okay. And we were talking about someone. And I said, well, Mom, we know who she is to us, but we don't know how she is as a mom. I said, so we got to get out of that. Boy, she was furious. She was to honor your father and your mother. I said, the Bible also has admonitions against you abusing your children, doing them wrong. Am I not wrong? Am I not right? Pastor, you're not supposed to abuse your children either, right? That is correct. That is correct. Uh, Okay. So I said, you know, I said, part of the challenge is, I said, we don't know all the pieces. I said, and we're sitting here speculating and everybody has because we have a friend who uh, everyone said you know because we loved her mother and and I still do and, but her daughter she was just a horror she wasn't nice to her mom I said mm. when I spoke with the daughter at the repast I said the rumor that I've heard I've got the impression that she was true that is that she was incested by her father oh wow our dear friend's husband I said, perhaps wow. that is why she was sent to boarding school. My mother didn't want to hear it. I said, now, I get you. I said, I know we love her. I said, but the, uh, there's, there's so many. I said, there's something that's off here. Uh-huh. And two plus two does not equal five. There's a factor of one we're missing. I said, we don't know it. Right. This was years ago. And, um, and I think that just happens so often in life. There's just, you just don't have the whole story. We don't have the whole story. We don't have the whole story. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. How can we worship with you and everyone? Put this book, I See You, Sis, under everybody's Christmas tree. Under everybody's (laughs) Christmas tree. Please Please do that. Go to Amazon. If you're going to see yourself and someone you love, whether you're male or female, particularly if you're a woman, you're going to see yourself in this. You're You're going to see some heroes and heroines in your own life. How can we worship with you on Sundays? Or just throughout the week to listen to these archived sermons because you are our preaching machine. Thank you. You can fellowship with us and listen to us and join us virtually on YouTube every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we'd love to have you. Go to the First Baptist Church of Bridgehampton page and subscribe. We just love you, Pastor Tisha Dixon Williams. I love you you all, too. Oh, my goodness. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Everybody, let's talk about Mehdi Hassan. Loved his show on MSNBC. It's been canceled. There was a rumor that the three Muslim anchors on MSNBC were going to be canceled. MSNBC strenuously rejected that notion, that rumor. Well, now one of them has been. Someone who spoke out strenuously, truthfully, about what's happening in the Middle East. Was that the reason? Or... Were they just having a shake-up? Let's talk about it on the Santita Jackson Show. Back in just a minute. We can change the world, change the world, change the world. We can change the world, we can change the world, change the world. This is the Santita Jackson Show. everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Santita Jackson Show, 773-763-9278 here on WCPT. That's right, you hear Honey Bun in the background, <laughs> the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, uh, and AM 950 Radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. It is a joy to be with all of you this morning, and let's talk about Mehdi Hassan. Many of us have been really avid watchers of his work. He's done just razor-sharp reporting on MSNBC, and he's been one of the few voices in corporate media who's really uh, given a perspective that that is inclusive of Palestinians in this space. Well, now he's gone, and it's what's unsettling is that several weeks ago there was a rumor that the three Muslim anchors, and MSNBC is to be applauded for having even done that, uh, that these three Muslim anchors were going to be fired. They vigorously denied that rumor, and then you see in this shakeup that actually his his his. He was on the chopping block. So I want to hear what your thoughts are about that. I mean, because now a great voice in that space has been stilled, you know, when it comes to talking about this particular issue and just so many others. And so I want you to call me at 773-763-9278. No one could say that he didn't do fantastic work because he did. Uh, But... um, Hmm. I don't know. We've got Dr. David Gibbs, historian from the University of Arizona. We've got Dwight McKee. And we've got, that's right, the great B.J. Green. I mean, you know, Bryce Green <laughs> from Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Let me start with you. This is your your space, uh, Bryce Green. What do you make of his firing? Now, there was a shakeup. Michael Steele and Simone Sanders, I mean, they're getting, they're gearing up for the 2024 uh, campaign. That is what MSNBC said. So we're trying to get things together before we go into this primary season. What do you make about uh, the cancellation of his show? Right. Well, uh, you know, when this war first started, uh, Semaphore reported and, uh, you know, others noticed that MSNBC took off a lot of their brown presenters, uh, these presenters who would have had a different perspective on Palestine, and they do have a different perspective on Palestine, than the rest of their uh, their lineup. Remember, when this war started, uh, it was wall-to-wall Israeli propaganda. I mean, you would have a uh, cable TV host uh, sitting next to an IDF soldier. The IDF soldier would be like, yes, we're planning on killing all the civilians, and the the uh, the anchor would be like, you don't really mean that, do you? The IDF would be like, yes, we do. 
and then be like, oh, well, uh, you know, they're still the moral, most moral army in the world. Uh, they, they were able to, you know, launder all the talking points of the IDF without any criticism whatsoever. Now we're seeing a bit more of that. But while they were doing that, they had put off uh, their Muslim uh, voices that they have on their, uh, on their station. Now, you know, I was too young for this, but maybe other listeners will know. I've only read about it and talked to people about it. But in the wake of 9-11, there was a similar sentiment in the country that even being Muslim was enough to offend some viewers. And so, therefore, we had to exclude those voices. We had to only include voices for the audience that would be comfortable for them. Uh, this seems to be a repeat of that. And there are a lot of parallels, especially with the rhetoric and the the. Uh, the violence that the attack was used to justify uh, between 10-7 and 9-11. And one of those parallels, of course, is how the media simply fell in line. Remember, there was a memo that went around uh, CNN headquarters in uh, after 9-11 uh, about the invasion of Iraq. It said it would, quote, be perverse to focus on civilian casualties without acknowledging that all these civilian casualties happened because of 9-11. Uh, like, remember the people who attacked us. You know, uh, something like that was deeply criticized by Mehdi Hassan, and uh, he would have certainly been one of the people criticizing that today. In fact, he has been uh, one of the people criticizing this mentality today. And uh, kicking that voice off the air, taking it off the air, for whatever justification now, is irresponsible. But given their history, uh, there's no reason to uh, assume the best intentions uh, as to why he was removed. I think there's good reason to suspect that they believed that their viewers and that their base, that the people that they, you know, pay the bills, don't want the voice that Mehdi brings to the discussion. Now, I have a lot of criticisms of Mehdi Hassan, uh, uh, of other reporting, but he's done a lot of good work. And right now it seems to be purely in the, the racist political zeitgeist that is engulfing the country right now, this anti-Muslim rhetoric, uh, this anti-Muslim sentiment. Uh, that seems to be the root cause of all of this. Well, see, I'm not too young to remember what happened on NBC, MSNBC when it was an emerging network at the beginning of the Iraq War. And Dr. Gibbs and Dwight McKee, okay, I think you recall this as well, uh, they were pulling together. That's when you had uh, Keith Olbermann and so many people, so many of these disparate voices, uh, very interesting voices who you had not really seen in corporate media who were being put on the platform. And so they coaxed Phil Donahue the great progressive out of retirement. He said, oh, no, I'll, since you want to have a progressive network, I'll help you to do this. And so he came out of retirement and he was anti-war. And specifically, he said he was part of the growing numbers of people in the United States and around the world who were saying, do not invade Iraq. We don't have the right to do this. It's wrong to do. And he brought on those voices uh, to, to, to discuss that. Not that he excluded other voices, but he certainly did discuss that. Well, it was their number one show with a bullet. They fired him, Bryce. It wasn't about the viewers. It was about his viewpoint. Do you think that's what happened here? Uh, I, do, I do agree. I mean, it's the, it's the fact that these networks largely cater to an elite audience, uh, or at least that's who they care uh, what, about what they think. Um, and when they get calls from people in high places saying, why is your anchor saying one of these things? 
Why is your anchor uh, putting this guy on? Why is your anchor not saying this, this, and this? Well, you know, they do have a sense of journalistic professionalism, but, you know, they're human beings. And if you're having someone who has significant influence calling you, telling you that they're hearing something they don't like, well, that's going to influence how you're going to decide to run your newsroom. That's just a normal human tendency. Uh, and it's reflective of the distribution of power. Now, there are a lot of people in power who are strongly supportive of Israel. There are a lot of people in power who are ardent Zionists, who believe that, you know, either Israel is you know, the rightful homeland for, for Jewish people and that it's worth, uh, you know, murdering children to quote-unquote defend, or there are people who believe that Israel is a, you know, an unsinkable aircraft carrier for the United States and that it's good to influence the Middle East. And they're willing to kill children to defend that. In either case, they have enough influence that they can call these networks, or they can get someone else to call these networks, or they can set up organizations like the ADL to uh, label these networks as anti-Semitic or criticize the rhetoric coming out of the host's mouth. They have the power to do that, which means they have power to shape the incentive structure that all of these newsrooms are operating in. And so if Mehdi Hassan is saying something that's, you know... He's no, he's no radical. He's no like left wing, uh, you know, communist dissident. He's you know a, a left liberal critic and a serious one. Uh, but even that is too far for some of these uh, organizations. And it, and it's interesting. You, it, it, no one in their right mind would accuse the American media ecosystem of being biased against Israel. Uh, you know, no one in their right mind would criticize Congress or any aspect of American society. Uh, any major aspect of being biased against Israel. What these people can't tolerate is that even though the overwhelming majority of the power structure is in support of their cause, they can't tolerate any dissent. It's borderline totalitarian mentality. If 90% of what's on the cable channel is pro-Israel, well, they'll freak out about the 10% because the control has to be so total, so uh, uninterrupted, uh, that people shouldn't and won't be able to hear the other side. And so that's the threat that Mehdi represents. Even if he's not a, a radical critic, he's a serious critic. And, uh, you know, the Israeli project and what they're doing right now, what they've been doing for 75 years, can't be justified to a serious critic. Those serious critics have to be removed. Hmm. Dr. Gibbs, what do you make of this? Are we watching censorship? Oh, yeah. Uh, what, what are we seeing? Because I just, I, I thought about, I, I don't know what his ratings are, but, you know, uh, I just remember MSNBC removed their number one show because it was anti-war. Well, but they are also one of the biggest uh, military munitions manufacturers on Earth, owned by GE. So talk to us. What, what are your thoughts about this? Um, it's often said that, you know, it's a cliche to say that in war, Truth is always the first casualty, but it's true all the same. And, you know, obviously we're seeing it here once again. Uh, you're getting, indeed, Israeli propaganda, um, you know, not just on the airwaves, but almost total domination of the airwaves. And to the extent that there are exceptions, like Mehdi Hassan, who present different perspectives, there's an effort to close them down. And it's nothing but Israeli propaganda. Um, you know, and that's... We, we have seen this before. There's no doubt about it. Uh, when America is involved in a war, as we are indeed involved in this war, uh, that's the tendency, is to set down contrary opinions. 
Um, I should add, I think the general problem with the culture, American culture right now, that we seem to despise debate. Um, that's unfortunately true of both sides of the aisle, both on left and right. There seems to be an intolerance for debate, an open, frank discussion. Um, now we're seeing it to a really extreme degree on this war, on the firing of Mehdi Hassan is you know, only one indication of how far it's gone. Um, and, um, you know, he was far from being any sort of, you know, wild-eyed radical. Uh, you know, as, as, I, I agree with Bryce Green that on many things he was very mainstream, and I disliked a lot of his positions, but he was presenting a different perspective uh, on the Israel-Palestine conflict, one that needs to be brought out. And that was seen as intolerable, and that's why he was fired. No doubt that's, or I assume it's highly likely, that's why he was fired. Another tendency we're seeing here is dehumanization of the, of the chosen enemy. In this case, not just Palestinians, but it would seem um, people of Arab descent, or even just people who are Muslims, whether Arab or not. Um, it's, that's an ugly racist tendency, but yes, that does indeed happen. It's happening now. It's happening with respect uh, to who's allowed on the air. And I, I suspect that was another variable here, is basically Mehdi Hassan, um, you know, he's at least of Muslim descent. I, I don't know whether he's practicing or not. Uh, he has a Muslim-sounding name, and I think that probably it was a variable in his firing, it would seem likely. Um, this isn't the only time we've seen this, of course. Uh, you've got a very similar dynamic playing out with regard to Russians, the Russian people, uh, the extraordinary demonization of Russians. Why? They're the chosen enemy, that's why. And so there has to be this extraordinary um, tendency to make Russians, and in this case, Arabs and Muslims as well, um, less than human, and, um, and not to see them on television, if at all possible. So yes, I think those are two very unpleasant dynamics taking place. I suppose the good news is I do expect this to change. I think there is increasingly uh, gathering um, disquiet. I think that'll become outrage over time, as increasingly large numbers of Innocent civilians, especially children, are killed in Gaza. I think that can only go on, go on so long before it really, frankly, turns people's stomachs and causes them to change their views and demand a different perspective. So I think over time, as this war continues, and it's likely to, uh, you're going to get um, uh, a tapering off of this kind of ugly tendency. At least that's the optimistic scenario, if you want to call it optimistic. I, I think that may well happen. Hmm. Dwight McKee, your thoughts? Well, you have to first understand that American media is a propaganda machine of the status quo. I mean, you can go all the way back to when we were kids with Rocky and his friends, with Lucretia and, and, and Boris. You know, the Russian bad guys that they turned into little monsters as we grew up. That was our perception of who the Russians were because we were programmed as children to believe that. It goes into, you know, who owns these corporate structures, uh, Microsoft and GE, and the fact that they get, they make, many of them make their money off the war machine. And it goes to the fact that the strategic interest of Israel is so overwhelmingly important in the Middle East for us to maintain control of that, that we cannot afford to let this oil get away, and we cannot afford to have the Suez Canal vulnerable, is all of our strategic interest is built around us having a military outpost in the Middle East.
and the country, the status quo, will allow nothing to stand against that. Not truth, not um, freedom, not the lives of children. Uh, the whole economy of the country in their mind is dependent on us having an occupation on that side of the world. And so it's, 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 it's not confusing when they have a dissonant voice or even a voice that's, you know, that's not singing along with the choir, that when they hear that voice and they see it as a threat, only because they're objective or only because they're bringing another truth, that they will steal those voices. That is nothing new if you understand how the, the media works in relationship to the interests of the country. Well, good morning, Cynthia, and to your colleagues. I think to Big Brother Dwight's point, the framing and, and the other point, the framing of dissent is is what makes a, a healthy democratic process. Uh, to have a different perspective, a different point of view, uh, helps us to get the value out of uh, what what uh, what we see, what we hear, what we discuss. Uh, when you start seeing the removal of certain perspectives, it brings back the suspicion that folks have had about uh, corporate media, uh, where the, the bottom line is the driver. When you start looking at who are the investors in these shareholder-driven companies who's sitting on the boards of directors, that really those are the interests that are being protected, not particularly what we hear is the mission um, of, of the media entity. And so I think it, what it forces you to do is to start looking at a couple of things. This is what, uh, uh, of course, Santita, your, your father has taught us. To start looking at who's advertising, uh, who's sitting on the board, which companies are represented in helping to, to provide the cover uh, for this kind of interest, and to start making determinations with your, your pocketbook, especially at this time of the year when folks are spending the money, right? This is when we try to turn the balance sheet around during the month uh, between uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, that folks should be aware of who is stifling. And, and I don't know that it's necessarily dissent. It's stifling uh, credibility, stifling integral conversation about what's going on. It's stifling robust discussion about human rights writ large. You cannot be about human rights and not be about human rights for everybody. That's what it means uh, to be part of that. That's the basis of, uh, of international law. And so if we're going to be about this rule of law, these things, these cliches, that often get tossed around, then these are the moments where we have to prove our commitment to those principles and make some serious determinations about do we, do we stay or do we go? We don't, this is not a runaway train where simply because we may choose or prefer MSNBC over some other media outlet, it doesn't mean that we have to, 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 to go along to get along. If there's not going to be that kind of representative, robust, uh, distinctive kind of perspective that allows us to make informed decisions about the issues, uh, then there are other options, and we should exercise our options and not get stuck on, on just kind of endorsing it by continuing to hold on for this ride, like somehow or other we'll go wherever the train is taking us, and we don't care where it stops. If... This is allowed to go on, Dr. Gibbs. Historically, I mean, just put, give, this, give us some historical perspective on this. 
where are we going? What does that say about free speech? What does that say about um, what does that say about America today? Well, I think it indicates that both sides of the aisle, unfortunately, really don't value free speech. You had conservatives taking the free speech mantra, criticizing, um, you know, many, in my view, misguided advocates of identity politics who wanted to ban speech. Um, and, you know, using terms like, you know, it makes me uncomfortable or something like that. And conservatives ridiculed that and it was some justification in some cases and took the quote unquote moral high ground in their view. And now we're seeing how hypocritical many of them are. Uh, many of them now are trying to shut down discussion on the you know, on uh, the war in Gaza. They're trying to get fired, people like Mehdi Hassan. I, I don't know specifically if that was the case here, but the general tendency is it's on the right, especially, that you're getting uh, you know demands basically for shutting down open discussion on college campuses, for example, with regard to the Israel-Gaza issue. And so, um, you know, we're getting a real breakdown on the traditional value of open discussion and free speech. The term cancel culture um, is very much a bipartisan practice. Um, you know, free speech for me, but not for thee. I think we need to get beyond that and establish that it's in the public interest that free speech, not only that should be, people should be allowed to speak, but also allowed to hear a range of perspectives. It's vital. On something like Gaza, where, you know, many people aren't well informed as to what's going on in Gaza. They need to hear a range of perspectives so they can make up their own minds. Uh, to some extent, uh, you know, it's, it's, what's happening here is not only unfair to, you know, people, individuals like Mehdi Hassan. It's not just unfair to, you know, the Palestinians because their views aren't being heard. But it's unfair to the American public because the American public is financing a lot of what is going on here. It's their money being spent. It's our money being spent. And, you know, people have the right to know. They have the right to have information. And there's a shutting down of information right now. And that's very dangerous and fundamentally undemocratic. Um, and it happens. Um, unfortunately, that is a tendency of war. Yes, this did happen during the war on terror. Indeed, I remember that very well. Um, there was a shutting down of any kind of debate or discussion, a blocking of information, basic information about the historical lead-up to these things. Um, and, uh, you know, see, blocking of information is a two-way street. First of all, you block contrary information. Second of all, it's easy to disseminate, frankly, lies, things that are blatantly untrue. Uh, that's happening now. That happened during the war on terror. It also happened is happening, by the way, with regard to the war in Ukraine. And so one of the things that enables militaristic policies is lies and propaganda and uh, the shutting down of discussion, which is why people do it. And it, it's, um, and it must be opposed. It's, it's, it's a tendency that must be opposed. Hmm. So, I don't know where it is that we go from here. It must be opposed, but it's, it's not being opposed. I mean, Dwight, we used to have media education where, you know, if someone like Mehdi Hassan, uh, Hassan was, was fired, you would you know, you'd start calling into the station, you write into the station. Do you think that will make a difference now? I've got about 30 seconds. No, because the backlash is so intense now, and the media control is so intense, is they turn the media against you. It's, I mean, even today, you still can't ask what happened to the third building on 9-11. You know, two buildings got hit with planes and they crashed. One building didn't get hit with anything and it crashed, but you can't ask that, ask that question without being labeled as some conspiratorial uh, maniac. 
And so and thank the, you for the asking that question on my show. Thank you. This is this is what God, <laughs> this is what God Rosie O'Donnell put off TV. You all remember that when she asked that question when she was the moderator on the View. She was put off of TV. Thank you. Thank you, Dwight. I appreciate you. Go on. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Thank you. Thank you. Well, the backlash is so pronounced <laughs> and so profound that they turn you into the enemy. They turn into the adversary just for asking the question, not for trying to give the answer. <laughs> and so it's a very tedious uh, tightrope that we're on, on now because the media is so fierce and the, the backlash is so intense and they're willing to make you know examples out of guys like Con, Con, Kanye and anybody who don't tour their party line and you watch what happens to them and you know that you about one minute from driving up that road and losing most of what you have. But so you know there's a real... You, no, I'm sorry. You were saying? Yes. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just I think that the people are beginning to push back. I look at what happened with um, the $20 million offer that was that was given to Hill Harper. They put that out there, and that became a story. People were like, whoa. Anytime AOC is, say, is calling uh, APAC really a danger to the democracy, something is shifting. In the zeitgeist. I mean, would you not say that, Bryce? I hope you can stay for a minute, but I know you've got class. What do you think? I got about thirty seconds. Not even twenty. No, I think. No, I, I think you're exactly right. Everything we're talking about is indicative of a larger culture in which a information is not uh, taken seriously by the by the people who are supposed to bring us the information. Uh, they, they think that they that we're you know children who need to be controlled, manipulated, and guided, uh, and not active citizens who can make their own decisions about what our government is really doing. Well, everybody, let's talk with Ray McGovern. Got a lot of questions for him at the top of the hour. Stay right here on the Santita Jackson Show. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show. Special guest today, Ray McGovern, a CIA officer turned political activist, really. Um, he was a CIA analyst from, I think it was 63 to 1990. And... Um, and prepare the president every morning. And so he comes to us with a wealth of understanding, a wealth of knowledge about how the world actually works. And I'm so excited to have him. Whenever I get a chance to speak with him on the air or personally, I walk away. I just think just feeling empowered and better. And I hope that he will. I know that he'll be that, he'll be that gift to you, too. So, everybody, uh, let's sit back and listen to what he has to say about the Middle East and where we are right now. Because there's a lot. There are a lot of questions that I have that we all have. Dwight McKee's listening in. Bryce Green's listening. And um, Reverend Dr. Todd Deary. Everybody wanted to weigh in. I said, but I have to limit everything because 
we want to listen, but there's some questions that I want to get to. So as we do that, let me get to some of these headlines. The pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas is over. The pause, which took effect a year, a week ago, uh, allowed for an exchange of hostages held by Hamas and Palestinian prisoners. Some people call them hostages because many of them were children who were just throwing rocks. It expired this morning. We'll see where we go from here. A gag order on Donald Trump was reinstated in his New York fraud case. An appeals court yesterday upheld a judge's order that prevents the former president from making public comments about court staff in the civil case. The order was issued after former President Trump posted a photo of an employee that the judge said led to threats against said employee. Wow, everybody in Chicago will have a high of 40. Four degrees today. It is already raining. It's expect we're expecting rain for the rest of the day. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, 36 degrees, mostly cloudy. In the NBA, the Bulls 120, the Bucks 113, the Timberwolves 101, the Jazz 90. In the NFL, well, last night the Cowboys pulled it out against the Seahawks. 41 to 35 in the in the NHL. The Red Wings five, Chicago one, the Wild six, the Predators one. Ray McGovern, welcome back to the show. A man who really needs no introduction. Uh, for those of us who uh, who really understand his story, would you tell us what you did in the CIA? Let's just let's start there. I was drawn down to Washington from my native Bronx in New York uh, by John Kennedy, who said, uh, maybe there's something you can do for your country, and don't be always asking what your country can do for you. Now, uh, that didn't sound corny at the time, Santita. Uh, It wasn't corny. It was a new beginning. Uh, It was very refreshing. I heard about this agency that had been sort of newly created, and its job was to tell the president what was going on abroad without fear or favor. Uh, As Truman put it, who actually created the agency, he said he wanted uh, intelligence that was not treated, his word, treated by policy considerations on the part of the State Department or on part of the Defense Department. He wanted to be able to look at somebody and say, I want you to tell me it's straight. You work for me. I have have your career protection, so tell me what's going on. Now, that's strange sounding to people today, but that worked for me as a, a Russian analyst, a Soviet analyst from, as you said, 1963, not till 1990, but about 1985, when even the intelligence analysis part of the agency started to become corrupted. So, long story short, uh, that played out when my former colleague, my God, it still pains me to say this, my former colleagues uh, deliberately falsified, manufactured, conjured up quote, intelligence, end quote, to justify the war of aggression in Iraq. And it went downhill from there. And I established or helped to co-create a a group called Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. There was no sanity much in Washington in those days. And uh, but, you know, we've been writing to presidents ever since Colin Powell told all those lies before the U.N. that same day. We told the president, forget about it. You don't need to go to war. He didn't listen. So 
Right now, we're busily engaged in things like Ukraine, but especially Gaza. And uh, what pains me to say is that our government is the great enabler here. Let me just say it this way. Israel could not possibly do what it's doing. It wouldn't it wouldn't think of doing what it's doing in Gaza if it didn't feel that it had the full-throated support of the United States. Biden has given the Israelis that full-throated support. Uh, one of his acolytes, little Blinken, flitted around yesterday, talked to the Israelis. Please, please, well, please, if, when you resume the genocide... Flitted around? Oh. Well, yeah, I mean, when you when you resume the genocide and and I use that term advisedly, uh, it's a textbook case of genocide against the Palestinians in Gaza. When you please do it in a humane way. Now, the humane pause is over. But but please try to respect the, the people that live there and don't kill them all. Well, he failed. Uh, and this morning, as the news item indicated, we're at it again. Um, last thing I'll say, <laughs> sorry to be talk so long here, mm-hmm. but, you know, what's missing here? Well, it was another genocide that I was, I'm old enough to have lived during that period. I was born a week before World War II. I know about the six million Jews. That was genocide. That was abhorrent. That was injustice in spades, okay? Now, what am I referring to as something that troubles me a lot about that? It is that people of faith, uh, Catholics, Lutherans in Germany, could not find their voice, and neither could the Pope. And so it was allowed to continue. Six million is a lot of people, okay? Now, where? Where, where are the spiritual leaders now? When this does it have to be six million? Can it be quote only and quote two million in Gaza? No one, no one is speaking out except people like a Jewish Voice for Peace, which I'm proud to be a member of. They have a conscience; they're speaking out. But my my point is, where are the Catholic bishops? Where are the other moral leaders that? claim a leadership role in morality and and religion, their their voices are silent. And as I say, it's on us. I'll just finish with this little quote, which is a very bracing quote, but it's from one of my favorite prophets, and his name was Abraham Heschel. You know about him. He marched with your dad and the others, okay? And what he said was this, when injustice takes place, few are guilty, but all are responsible. Indifference to evil is more insidious than evil itself. End quote. I'll leave it there. We cannot be indifferent to what's going on now. Uh, it is it, it is shameful. And as I say, only the United States, only the people in Washington have the power to stop it. All they have to do is say, stop it, or we won't we won't give you any more arms or any more money. Stop it. And it would stop. Why won't we stop it? I mean, I know the president well, is a self-declared Zionist, right? Yeah. Um, I know right. Anthony Blinken went there, and the first thing he announced right after October 7th was, first I'm coming to you, 
as a member of the Jewish community. Was that the thing to do? Yeah. Would you say that? Santita, you put your finger right on it. Um, the the Zionist, I'm not saying Jewish, I'm saying Zionist mm-hmm. here, and I hope your listeners know the difference. What the is Zionist the difference? influence, well, Zionist is a political movement. Uh, Zionism has nothing to do with the Jewish religion. It's a, it's an abhorrent thing for for people who believe in the Yahweh of the Hebrew Scriptures. I mean, let's put it let's put it this way. We talk about the Abrahamic tradition, Santita, and of course that embraces not only uh, the Hebrews, not only the Christians, but also the Muslims. Okay. And what was it that this Yahweh of the Old Testament and Jesus of Nazareth and, and the prophet, what did they care about most of all? It's very clear. Heschel said it himself, we do justice, that we take care of the widow, the orphan, the refugee. Now, this is going to be a bracing thought to most of you, but why has Hamas been so popular in Gaza? because they take care of the widow, the orphan refugee. That's why they have so many hospitals. That's why they won the election in 2005, hands down to the surprise of everyone. The PLO, the the Palestine Liberation Organization in the West Bank was so corrupt, no one voted for them. So, uh, you know, this is not to Use the excesses or the terrible, terrible stuff that they did on October 7th. But I just say, as the Secretary General of the UN said, it didn't happen in a vacuum. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, <laughs> I'm I'm pretty old guy, right? And so I was nine years old in the Bronx, New York, growing up there when a great event happened. It was 1948. And the Jews, the persecuted Jews, had a state, had a country of their own to go to, and there was great rejoicing. There were bands and parades. <laughs> we all rejoiced, right? Everyone, whether we were Jewish or not. But no one told me, Santita, no one told me that there were people already there, that there were 700,000 at least Palestinians driven off their land, out of their homes. And half of them ended up in Gaza. And the people there now are the direct descendants of those people who were driven out of uh, what had been Palestine. So, you know, when you come right down to it, you have to realize that this goes back, well, 1948, what's that, 70 years or so, 75 years? Uh, it's, uh, it's uh, well, I'll just say again what the Secretary General of the U.N. said. It didn't happen in a vacuum. I've been there. I was on the West Bank. I saw how Palestinians were treated there. I saw how these uh, alabaster cities on the top of these hills from the, quote, settlers uh, with their sprinklers uh, making sure the grass was so green, whereas down at the bottom of the hill in the Palestinian village, there was no running water. I've seen that, and and I've been shot at by, by Israeli settlers with a group that... We we went to uh, we went to Palestine six years ago. A little group, nine people from Veterans for Peace. I can talk more about that, but that was a real eye opener. You have to be there to see how people are suppressed and how nonviolently they can react. A lot of them now 
or in prison. We're talking with Ray McGovern, former CIA operative, co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, telling us really how just how all of this works, how the world really works. I mean, I'd like you to help me to understand how we got here. I mean, you, you've explained that Hamas, uh, while they do, I mean, if what they did on October 7th was heinous. That having been said, there is a context. I've heard several people say, look, it did not begin October 7th. It really began 75-odd years ago. Um, would it have made a difference to you and to many Americans if 75 years ago you knew that people were already there when Israel was settled? Well, it certainly would. Uh, young as I was, nine years old at the time, if somebody told me, well, you know, it's a mixed blessing. Uh, it's really great that the persecuted Jews after World War II have a place to go. But they're throwing other people out of their homes. They're driving other people out of out of the area that they, they lived in for centuries, if not millennia. I mean, my God, you know, since there's a two-edged sword here, um, yeah, if they told me that, I certainly would have, <laughs> young as I was, had mixed feelings about it. But they didn't tell me that. And not many Americans know that. And that goes to one of the core reasons for all this, that not only do Zionists um, dominate our government, uh, Joe Biden, as you mentioned, Santita, uh, a self-declared supreme Zionist, uh, Blinken arrives in, in Israel and says, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a Jew. Now, that seems so extraordinary. Why? Because if the U.S. is pretending to play a, a you know, a, an even-handed role here as mediator, or at least have some influence on both sides, why would he say he's a Jew? I mean, uh, <laughs> the Jewish people, the Zionist people, I correct myself, have dominated policymaking in the Middle East ever since I knew about policymaking in the Middle East. But none of them, none of them started out by saying, you know, I'm a Jew. What was that all about? Well, it just shows that he's so insensitive uh, to the problem here. And the fact that he's a Jew in the religious sense means nothing. He's a Zionist, and that's different. Those are the people that kicked the Palestinians out of their homeland 75 years ago. Well, what does it say to, you know, this former, that he wasn't just an Obama official, he worked in several administrations. This gentleman who was in the State Department, who was harassing uh Palestinian or and or Arab vendors in New York saying that 4,000 children, their children was not enough. Who is working in the State Department? The State Department is peopled uh, by folks that uh, came in in previous administrations and now the Zionist administration of Tony Blinken, who's the Secretary of State. That was an egregious example of one of the former workers in the Obama administration who lost it. Uh, he has these deep-seated racial feelings that uh, that came out just because, just because this guy didn't look like an American or a Zionist. He looked like a Palestinian, for God's sake. And so he reamed them out. It was, it was caught on tape, as most people know. 
it's a really good example of how when people don't look like you <clears throat> or don't look like the majority of you, well, you know what that's called. That's called racism, pure and simple. And you think by now, by now people will be sensitized to, to the fact when, when Israeli leaders say, well, these are human animals. Human animals, these Palestinians. We're going to get rid of them. And as, as I say, we have ethnic cleansing going on now. We have collective punishment. And worst of all, we have a textbook case of genocide. Genocide. Gens, the word for tribe or people. Uh, homicide. You're going to kill a whole tribe or a whole ethnic group of people. And, you know, here's an example that I came upon this past week talking about these things, Cynthia. Maybe it will, re maybe it will relate to others who know a little bit about World War II. Now, during World War II, uh, the French sort of caved, right? Uh, the Germans rolled in and the French set up this Vichy government and collaborated with the Germans. But there was a small group of French resistance people, right? And the resistance uh, did what resistance groups do. They took took out after the Nazis every chance they got. Okay, now, um, did anyone say in those days that, oh, the Vichy government, the Nazi-dominated government in Paris, uh, they have a right to defend themselves from the resistance? Now, yeah, they have a right to defend themselves. Of course not, because they were occupiers. They had no right to defend themselves from the people in, in France who were trying to free France. Well, the analogy, of course, is that the Israelis do not have the right to defend themselves in Gaza. Gaza is internationally recognized as occupied territories. There is a resistance there. Now, I don't defend the bloodiness of what happened on October 7th, but the Israelis cannot claim the right to defend themselves in Gaza because since World War II, it's become even more explicit in international law that, uh, that people in occupied territories are to be protected by the occupier, not killed or wiped off the map. We're talking with Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst, co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Peace. I know that you've got to run to class, Bryce Green. i got a couple of minutes. Would you like to make a comment or ask a question? All right, yeah. Uh, uh, thank you for everything that you've done, Ray. Thank you for uh, Veterans Intelligence Professionals for Peace. VIPS has been extremely helpful. Uh, but I do have a question about... Um, the context that led up to 10-7 and what actually happened that day and what people are telling you and what you've read and what you understand. Uh, yesterday, the New York Times published an article uh, that the Israelis knew of Hamas's plans, uh, very specific plans, this military operation to go into uh, multiple uh, military bases in Israel and take hostages as a, mil as a military operation. Uh, New York Times reported that Israel had these plans, uh, but allegedly they ignored them. This is included in a, uh, or this adds to a wide body of evidence showing advanced warnings of the attacks, and warnings from the Egyptians, uh, the American intelligence community had advanced warning. Even Israeli soldiers on the border had advanced warnings. Uh, 
And then you go into the the details of what actually happened on the day 10-7. And there are credible reports of the use of uh, Israeli tank shelling uh, and uh, Apache helicopters um, that contributed to the large number of civilian casualties. As of now, it's impossible to tell how many people were killed by Israel and how many people were killed by Hamas and how many people were killed by other militant groups and even just randos who had streamed over the border. So I'm curious... Uh, what you think of all of this evidence, what uh, what you make of it, and how it reflects on the current situation and the parallels between uh, this and uh, other major attacks in uh, world history. And everybody, you're going to have to hold on <clears throat> to get that answer on the other side of the break, which means you're going to have to run to class. Uh, uh, Bryce, you're going to have to wait because <laughs> I want you to hear <laughs> what Ray McGovern has got to say. It was They said they knew very, very, in, in great detail what was going to happen. And then when you see that the IDF waited hours to respond to these attacks... We have a lot of questions. Talking with Ray McGovern here on the Santita Jackson Show. Call us at 773-763-9278. Back in just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show, WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, NAM 950 Radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota, and the Santita Jackson Show YouTube channel. Meet my morning stars over there. And as you do, wish Carol Soskin a happy birthday. She told us about her birthday at the end of the show, so no one got a chance to wish my sister from another mister happy birthday. I love you, Carol Soskin, getting up there first thing in the morning in the hills of Beverly. We love you, Carol. Everybody wish her a happy birthday. We're talking with Ray McGovern. Oh, boy. Former CIA analyst. Uh, Really, someone who is a seminarian who has really taken, taken it upon himself, and along with other veteran intelligence professionals for sanity, to help us to be sane because you can only be sane when you have truth. He said, "No, no, you—you've been told a good many falsehoods, and we're going to correct them, and we're going to—we're ch- going to speak truth to power and challenge them." Of course, he also briefed the president, so he's got some bona fides, everybody. So he was asked a question just succinctly, uh, in in about thirty seconds or less. Uh, there was a New York Times report uh, that came out yesterday that detailed uh, the specificity with which, uh, I mean, Israel knew, right, Bryce Green. They knew. They'd been warned. They'd been warned by the Egyptians, and they'd been warned by their own intelligence. Bryce. Right. Uh, There seems to be extensive uh, reason to believe that the Israeli military structure had warnings of the attacks. Uh, The excuse seems to be that this might have been, you know, a classic case of military failures, as the case of... uh, 
9-11. But, you know, even Netanyahu has suggested that, uh, you know, this attack was deliberately allowed to happen, um, and that was a result of political rivals within the Israeli uh, state. And again, if you look back at 9-11, uh, we learned a lot more after these initial reports. We got a look at the documentary record. We got a look at how the, the CIA and Alex Station was a black hole uh, for information about the hijackers that they knew were in the United States. So there is certainly precedent for a, a confusing and uh, mysterious event like this. Uh, pointing the finger, uh, at least to some degree, at our own intelligence community, at their own intelligence community. And so I'm wondering if there is good reason to suspect that something like that has occurred here. And uh, combined with the uh, other reports uh, talking about how 10-7, the attacks, were not what they were initially reported, and that uh, there are credible reports from Israeli press demonstrating that there was a significant degree of crossfire that resulted in the high civilian casualties. In fact, at one point, Israel believed that they had burned, beyond recognition, over 200 of their own people before they realized that they were actually, you know, Palestinians, and then they revised their estimates down. So I'm curious what you make of this pattern of facts and how you relate it to other uh, events in American or world history. Well, Bright, those are really excellent questions. Uh, let me try try to answer the first one first. Um, whether it was deliberately ignored, uh, these reports, which were copious, that Hamas was about to do something, or whether Hamas had adopted such tight security procedures as to be able to plan this thing and conduct it as a complete surprise, uh, the jury is out. Uh, the... The false flag kind of thing, that's a tenable hypothesis in my view, but I lean, to, uh, I lean toward the, uh, uh, the total surprise on the part of the, the top leaders in Israel who either weren't completely informed or preferred not to be informed. And you know when you're at the top and you're, dis you're, you're trying to discourage people from telling you bad news, well, they keep it at their level and these things happen. So I don't know the real answer to that. You're quite right in pointing out that it's very suspicious that this could happen. The Warsaw since so much, including from the Egyptians, was made available to the British, to the to the Israelis. Uh, I don't know the, the complete answer, but I lean to the total surprise. Uh, and you know, the Hamas was really smart in knocking out all those electronic devices, and they had a couple of years to prepare. So that's where I lean. Now on the the charred bodies, those came from Apache helicopters built in the United States. They came from Israelis flying them, and some of those pilots have admitted it. Uh, they fired on every car that was leading, uh, leaving that concert. They fired on anything they could fire on uh, because there might, be, there might be Hamas there. Did they kill hostages? Of course they did. So this business about uh, the, the 1,400 first uh, was the, the uh, casualty rate. Now it's 1,200. Um, that's because uh, some 200 of those were Hamas leaders. So how many of those Israelis uh, were killed uh, by Hamas? Well, we think about half of that 1,200. The other half were done in by the Israelis who have a policy of shooting, shooting up anyone who is a who is a, an enemy, uh, and if they happen to be shooting up civilians, 
including Israeli civilians in the process. That's okay. We'll blame it on Hamas anyway. And that's what accounted for those charred bodies that could only uh, result from the kind of missiles that Apache helicopters and Israeli tanks use. Did that help you out, Bryce? Uh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, and you know, in addition to the charred bodies, there was also a you know a tank crew that rolled into the the kibbutz, and uh, and there was there you know there was a lot of instances uh, of crossfire, and then the uh, charges that Hamas targeted a music festival uh, seemed to be completely debunked by the fact that the music festival was planned to be in a completely different location that day, and it was only changed uh, two days before uh, the the actual attack. And so, and even, I think it just goes to show the extent to which we exist in a propaganda system that's incapable of incorporating new facts into pre-digested narratives. Uh, people, you know, I have people telling me today, you know, uh, Hamas killed 1,400 civilians, mm-hmm. and they're evil, mm-hmm. and they targeted them. And they, they have no idea that, uh, you know, uh, a large number, about 400 of those uh, the, uh, the number of the 1,200 were actually military uh, officials, were actually soldiers. And what's very clear is that even if you accept the false premise that Hamas was responsible for every single death that day, uh, the ratio of military personnel to civilians killed is still far, far more in the favor of uh, military operation than what Israel's response has been, which even according to their own estimates... Uh, their their own estimates, uh, something like 90 to 95 percent of the casualties in Gaza are civilians. So for every, you know, one Hamas fighter uh, they, they claim to kill, they, they claim to kill, you know, uh, over a dozen, maybe even 20 uh, civilians. And so it's it's difficult to have a rational conversation about 10-7, what should be our response to it, when the, the basic facts of the case are being distorted, manipulated, and, you know, it's pretty obvious why, uh, you know, they, they're justifying a policy that they've had for years and years and years. Uh, but our media system is, seems to be incapable of handling it. Well, you know, yes, I'm I would say, Bright, that yes, it's please. not so much incapable. It, it's thoroughly influenced by Zionist people who have inordinate or disproportionate control of the media. And the same goes for our Congress. Uh, the Israel lobby uh, can uh, get people elected and they can get people removed. There's a, well, Andy Levin from the Levin family out there in Michigan. I mean, he lost the primary. So the Israel lobby is involved in primaries now in the Democratic Party. So, you know, the the media and the Congress are, are influenced by this Zionist spirit. And, uh, you know, they, that's why Netanyahu can brag, as he did just 20 years ago in a, uh, in a video thing that he thought the video camera was off. What he said was this. Uh, we have to make it so painful. We have to make chaos for the Palestinians so they leave. And the hostess says, well, won't people, international people, criticize us for that? And he says, oh, oh, oh look. America is what counts. We have such influence in America. 80% of the people support us. It's absurd, period, end quote, out of the mouth of BB. The video is available on YouTube. Okay, now if that's 
if that's his attitude, and if he considers that Blinken is just a little acolyte making motions and doesn't really matter because Biden's going to support whatever PB does, then we bear a responsibility here to speak up, get out in the streets and make sure that we get a ceasefire that lasts this time because indifference to evil is more insidious than evil itself, Rabbi Heschel. How are we being... How is the United States being impacted internationally? You've seen Putin, you've seen the Chinese government say this is a red line, what you're doing to the Palestinians is wrong. In fact, you're not going to have a resolution to this crisis until they get justice. I mean, the other super, the emerging superpowers of the world are really lining up against the United States. Or am I misreading well, this? No, you're exactly right. And, you know, I'm embarrassed. I mean, I love my country. I served it in uniform. I served it for 30 years as an intelligence. I mean, it's so embarrassing for me to say that there's a genocide going on and it couldn't happen without the support of my country. My, quote, elected representatives, end quote, and my president. Now, the whole world sees that as well. Uh, this is going down as a not only an embarrassment, uh, but the kind of reverse in, in, in standing that will be really hard to recoup. Um, and worse still, uh, how long will it be before the surrounding Arab countries and Turkey and Iran say that's enough? These are Palestinians. We're going to defend them. We're not going to let two million be genocided. Okay, we're going to stop it now and intervene. Then what happens? Does the U.S. come in with those with those aircraft carriers that they have in the Med with that submarine? Yeah, it's really very volatile now. Uh, I I applaud the restraint exercise so far by the governments in that area that are heavily populated by Palestinian people driven out in 1948. But how long that patience can last, how long they can resist the pressures from these Palestinians that live in their countries is an unknown question. So it's more a matter of losing stature diplomatically. It's a, it's a matter of uh, becoming involved in defending uh, our, quote, ally, end quote, Israel, uh, to the detriment of our own interests, as has been the case below these 75 years. But what is the end game here? I mean, now hostilities have resumed, although the IDF was shooting at people who were going back to northern Gaza, they wanted to go home, uh, and they've been shooting at people in the south. Settlers are attacking Palestinians on the West Bank. It's not like hostilities really ceased no, they're intensifying now. And you know, those people they drove out of northern Gaza are now uh, subjected to uh, strikes from the air uh, in southern Gaza. Um, even hospitals are being shelled again. You know, this is just so bad that uh, someone needs to rise up. And as I say, lacking a religious or a moral leadership here in this country, there's only us. You know, my, my favorite theologian, Annie Dillard, says, you know, there's only us. There never has been any other. We, I, this, I live in this little dwarf here called Raleigh, North Carolina. <laughs> I say dwarf. It's, it's a really small town. Yeah, it's the capital, but it's a small town. 3,000 Palestinian supporters came out twice last week 
I spoke at one of those gatherings, and they all had the kafias on, okay? And one of the leaders said, now, how many here uh, have no, no real connection to Palestine at all? 90% of the people had their hands raised up. So there are people who care about justice. It's just a matter of mobilizing them, as your dad and mom did so well, Santita, in the past, and saying, hey, look, you know, indifference to evil is really, really bad. It's worse than evil itself. I mean, that's a truism, but it needs to be inculcated in Americans who need to speak out. We're talking with Ray McGovern, CIA analyst, veterans intelligence, for well, former CIA analyst, briefed the president, co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Uh, it's just, it's amazing that this can go on. Dwight McGee, uh, do you have a question or comment? Uh, no, I'm listening very closely, trying to pull the pieces together so we can see the inconsistencies. And uh, it's very suspicious that uh, Israel has some of the most sophisticated intelligence in the world, and yet this thing went on five or six hours with at the convenience of Netanyahu, who was at the time almost thrown out of office and under investigation for, for, for crimes. And so even if it was not planned by him or even if it was not not uh, suspected by him, it, it really worked his benefit because it locked him in office and it gave him a pretext to do what he had been trying to do anyway, which is that ethnic cleansing of Gaza. Well, Reverend Dr. Yuri, before I pivot to you, let me ask you this, Ray McGovern. Are we more vulnerable? Is America more vulnerable to terrorist activity? We see what happened up in Pennsylvania at the Aliquippa uh, Water Authority, uh, the, the cyber attack. They said that the the safety of the water was not attacked, just access to it. But I'm wondering if we're not more vulnerable than we're even understanding, because people feel that America is at the center of this. Well, Santita, again, you put your finger on it. Yeah, of course we are. Uh, you know, if people don't care about the justice issue of all this or the injustice, well, think about self-interest. Did, did those terrorists attack us on 9-11 because they hate our freedom? Give me a break. It's very, very clear. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Uh, the mastermind of this whole thing was, was caught while the 9-11 Commission report was being written. And on page 147, look it up, they asked him why he did it. And he said, you know, I didn't do it because of any bad experience I had studying in University of North Carolina, Greensboro. I did it because of my extreme hatred for U.S. policy favoring Israel. Now, so did... Uh, so did Osama bin Laden, for God's sake, a couple of years previously. And so did Ramzi Youssef, the nephew of uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was condemned or sentenced to something like 140 years. At his sentencing, he said, I'm glad I did this because somebody needed to do something. He tried to, he tried to knock down the Twin Towers in 1993. He was convicted. He said, I'm glad I did it because of my extreme hatred for the policy of the United States supporting Israel no matter what. I wanted to show the, the American people that that's not tolerated 
by people of justice. So, yeah, of course it's going to redound here. Uh, the FBI is, is, is now warning, well, we need more people because uh, they're going to be terrorists. Well, there probably will be. But if there are, and I'm not condoning it, I'm just saying, look, it will not happen in a vacuum, right? Uh, there are there are reasons why people feel really strongly against us, and it's not because they hate our freedom. Well, what do you make of Netanyahu saying that America and Europe, you're next? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, well, in one sense, he's right. I mean, to the degree Europe and America condone what he's doing, there will be terrorism. It happened last time, okay? But uh, what he's really trying to do is this propaganda thing. Look, you know, these terrible people that don't look like us. That's key, folks. Got that? These terrible people don't look like us. They're going to get you guys, too, because lots of people don't look like us in Europe, not to mention the United States. And that goes to to what uh, James Baldwin wrote to Angela Davis when she was captured. This is what he said. Quote, let me put it this way. As long as white Americans take refuge in their whiteness, they will allow millions of other people to be slaughtered. So long as their whiteness puts so sinister a distance between their own experience and the experience of others, they will never feel themselves sufficiently worthwhile to become responsible for themselves. As we once put it in the black church, they will perish in their sins, that is, in their delusions. Well, that was 1970. Open letter to my sister, Miss Angela Davis. Okay? It's true now in a way that's even more insidious than it was then. Reverend Dr. Yeri, you know, we're going to be going out. I hope uh, Ray McGovern can stay with us just for a couple of minutes just after we get off the air here. Your thoughts? Well, there, there are a lot of thoughts. Uh, there's, there's pretext. There's extendability for a larger outcome. And then there's the manipulation that comes from uh, land grabs and colonial mindset. When we, when we talk about natural resource and uh, the ability to control and seize and what efforts are used, it took me back to the rules that set the Berlin Conference, that uh, in the colonization of the continent, the two determinations, the ground rules of monopoly, if you will, were one, you had to have an established economic interest in the area you wanted to colonize, and then you had to have the military wherewithal to protect it. And so if we look at an extension of what we've seen from the colonization movement throughout history, particularly as it has been often overseen by the United States, if not directly led by the United States, it, it raises an air of suspicion, right? So you can't just, sure. this isn't just an event detached from other events. It's placed within a continuum of a historical context that causes you to just go, hmm, to you know, Arsenio Hall from back in the day. On that note, I have a couple of minutes before we go off the air. The last two minutes belong to you, Ray McGovern. Hmm. Well, I can't agree more. Uh, economic interest and the military wherewithal. I mean, we have to go back centuries to see the beginning of that, but those centuries count. 
what I would cite is the first policy planning document prepared by the newly created State Department Policy Planning Group, written by George Kennan, okay? 1948. And what he said was this. We, the United States, have risen from this war, this carnage, uh, with domain over 50% of the world's resources. The problem is we only comprise 9% of the world's population. And so we can't be deceived. We can't be misled by soft issues like human rights or things like that. It will come to the exercise of hard power to defend this disequilibrium, this disproportionate ownership we have over the natural resources of the world. Now, that was 1948. It hasn't changed very much, but the game is over. Uh, the rest of the world is looking at the lily white west. They remember what happened centuries ago, and they're not going to put it up with they're not going to put up with it anymore. The U.S. is no longer the indispensable or even exceptional country. The problem is that Biden, Blinken, Sullivan, and Nolan have not got that through their thick skulls yet. I was going to ask you, do they know that? Because they walk around the world as if, I mean, it's you like know, that's the, they don't know. Yeah, that's the, that's the question. Do they know that? Uh well, you know, I used to think, oh, they can't know that because they're reasonably bright. They come from the best schools, right, Sandy? <laughs> okay, well, well they you didn't know, go to Howard. I don't person. know what you're talking about. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I meant the, I mean the, the pretentious best. Yeah, absolutely, yes, yes. <laughs> but, but, you know, just listen to the president talk about praising Madeleine Albright and her coining of the of the of the word. We are indispensable. We are exceptional, and we have to lead. He said that two days after he came back from Israel this past month. My God, I think he, you know, he's a pretty old guy. I, mean, I don't think he's as compassmentous as even I am. <laughs> but he, he appears to believe that. And these guys that never wore a uniform and have been told that they're elitist and privileged in the United States is entitled to their large share of the resources. These guys are not going to tell them that the U.S. is anything other than indispensable. They're going to learn the hard way, I hope, uh, not with a whole lot more violence. Well, I want you to stay with me on the other side just for a couple of minutes. You've got to tell me about Henry Kissinger, your thoughts. That's why you need to be on the Santita Jackson Show YouTube channel, everybody. I'll see you on Keep Up Alive on Sunday. God bless you.